wonderful song to end music time of music with this morning. It really fits, as Phil has mentioned or mentioned, it really fits with our study in Ephesians, especially the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's so much confusion out there, amen, that uh, what the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, and so it's just a wonderful, wonderful to focus on and know and understand and grow an understanding of the, the ministry of the Spirit. Well, as uh, I've said earlier, good morning. Good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm glad you could join us here, uh, either here at the Gakkar building or online. As you know, we are, as I've mentioned a few times, we are struggling through incredibly difficult circumstances. But I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged this morning that the Word of God has all the answers that we need. Uh, this, just yesterday, I, an article came out that stated the following. It says this, The science is screaming. Americans are in turmoil. Now, I don't know how they figured that out. That's, that's the joke. It's, it's obvious that we are in turmoil. It goes on to say, More than 80% of U.S. adults report the nation's future is a significant source of stress, according to a report Thursday from the American Psychological Association. Americans are the unhappiest they've been in 50 years, according to a COVID response tracking study released Monday. And a survey published this month in the American journal, uh, JAMA, found three times as many U.S. adults reporting symptoms of serious psychological distress in April as they did two years earlier. It goes on to say, this, this article is incredibly full of good news, it goes on to say that America is a nation unmoored, and experts say for many people the negative mental health impacts will outlast the current crisis. Research suggests the extreme stress triggered by these events may even lead to longer-term psychiatric disorders. Now, this article, as you might can tell, I didn't read the whole article, this article didn't offer much in the way of hope. Even if it did, I hope you realize that we can't rely on it. Friends, the world offers a hope that will disappoint. But Christ has conquered sin and death he is in full control and it's in him that we find true hope you can be truly optimistic as a christian do you know this you realize this right i mean i think sometimes we forget it i, I know i can but we can be truly optimistic about our future because of christ's victory at the cross if you know him and if you are in him your future is assured. In the true church of Christ, we serve one another in the body of Christ with our spiritual gifts, knowing that our service will truly make a difference in the church, our families, and the world. You realize that? It's in this, this, it's in our service to one another and our service to God in the church that we can have true hope. Brethren, this is where 
we can have true hope in a lost world, right? Well, let me pray for us this morning, and we'll get started in our, our sermon. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be working through the preaching of the Word so that you would be glorified this morning and the saints would grow in maturity as they hear the wisdom of the Word being preached. Father, I pray that I would, that I would decrease, that you would increase. It would not be me or my personality but it would be your word that comes through clear and with authority. In Christ's name, amen. Emily Heaton was just a normal six-year-old little girl who believed that her daddy could give her all her heart's desires while having a tea party with her father, Jeremiah. She did what many little girls have done. She asked him if she could be a princess. Now, most fathers would say something like, well, you're daddy's little princess. But Jeremiah, the owner of a mine safety company in Virginia, doesn't seem to be the normal sort of father. He set out to actually make her dream come true. He did the research and discovered a piece of property or a piece of land in the African desert that was claimed by, or that is claimed, by no country. He researched international law concerning the acquisition, acquisition of territory, and he set out to build a kingdom for his daughter. Therefore, he set about declaring borders and proving the area didn't have a history of being controlled by any other government. Then he traveled to the new territory in 2015, and he planted his flag to announce to the world his intention to govern this small region. Now, the third and fourth steps of this might be a little bit more difficult considering the current situation. To be considered a new country... It will need to be occupied and have normalized trade relationships with its neighbors. Now, considering that Heaton describes the land as uninhabitable and that neither Sudan nor Egypt have legally recognized the country as a state, that might be a little difficult. Now, he's even had hopes that he might build a large energy production facility there to, to, to be able to supply power to Egypt and Sudan. But he says that he says both are in energy crisis. You see, Mr. Heaton has a plan for his new kingdom, but there may be too many complications for him to overcome. It turns out, and as you may expect, his claim on the territory has been disputed. There are other people who have made various claims on this territory. Now, through the Internet research that I've done, it's hard to know how this has all worked out, but it seems a little harder than expected for Daddy to make his daughter a true princess. I guess she'll have to stick with being Daddy's little princess, right? Now, before you feel too sorry for her or her father, it seems that Disney has purchased the rights to his story for an undisclosed amount. Now, in this world, though, that doesn't we don't always get the happy ending, as, it, as you may expect in our politically charged age, there have been charges of modern-day colonialism. It seems that, a, that a, an American man uh, making his daughter a little American princess is not the most popular thing in this world that we live. 
As such, I'm not certain the film will ever make it to the big screen. As it turns out, it's very complicated to declare that you will build your own kingdom even when the land is uninhabitable and nobody in their right mind even wants it. Speaking of complicated and improbable, over 2,000 years ago, the son of a Jewish carpenter stood on a rock in Caesarea Philippi. He boldly declared to Peter and to the rest of the disciples and to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that he would build his church. After making this declaration, he began the most impossible of victory marches which would go through the cross and the grave, but would culminate with him seated on the throne of God. The church is not the kingdom of God, but we understand it as Christ's outpost in enemy territory which will one day give way to the kingdom when he returns in triumph. The main takeaway, though, is that Jesus has made a promise. He has made a promise that he would build his church. He has promised this to his people, and he will keep the promise. He made this promise before the rulers and authorities who desire to tear the church asunder, and he promised that it would never happen. He purchased the church with his own blood, and he promised that it would prevail until his return. We sing the the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. Samuel Stone pens these words about the church. We sing these words. I think this is verse 3 of of what we sing. Though with scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Now let me give you the words of an even rarer verse in this song. It says this, The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who, that hate her and false sons in her pale against both foe and traitor, she will ever prevail. The hymn writer masterfully captures the struggle and masterfully captures the ultimate triumph of the church. The church will prevail, just as Christ has promised, even as the church itself mightily struggles in the here and now. This is true because Jesus continues to be the head of his church. He continues to be the head. He continues to guide his church. He continues to personally protect his church and to feed his people. And he continues to give us everything we need to carry out his plan. Unlike Jeremiah Heaton, right? Jeremiah Heaton said he wanted to set out to make his daughter a princess. But he's just a mere man. He could not follow through on that promise. But that is not so with the Lord. He is able to do so. He has won the right to do so. Now this brings us to our current passage in Ephesians 4, 7-16. In this passage, I've titled the sermon, Christ's Gifts to His Church. In this passage, Paul teaches the church at Ephesus four glorious realities concerning the source of our spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gifts are a provision of grace. First point. Second point is they are a presentation of Christ. 
third point is that they are, the third reality is that they are a prize of war. And the fourth reality is they are pivotal for unity, pivotal for unity. Let's look at the first glorious reality. Your spiritual gifts are a provisional, or a provision, that is, of grace. Now let me quickly remind you what we've learned thus far in the first six chapters, or first six verses, that is. There's only six chapters of Ephesians, so it's probably uh, not what I meant. Six verses of this fourth chapter. In verse 1, Paul calls the church at Ephesus to walk worthy of their calling. Now we have seen that verse 1 is the purpose statement for the for the final three chapters of the letter. Now, after exhorting the saints to walk worthy, he begins to explain, starting in verse 2, he begins to explain how we are to fulfill, how we are to carry out this exhortation. He says, he tells us that we, uh, the worthy walk, that is, is one that personifies humility and gentleness. You see, we cannot claim to be in Christ. We cannot claim to be servants of Christ if we are not genuinely uh, pursuing humility and gentleness, especially toward the brethren within the body of Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. He calls for us to practice patience and forbearance toward one another in love. He calls us to be patient. He calls us to... Forbear with one another. We're exhorted to do these things in order to then preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now in verse 4, Paul begins to give the basis for this supernatural unity which we enjoy as a church. Our oneness in the body of Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Just listen, we read this earlier. Verses 4 through 6. Paul says there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, of all, that is, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul is calling us to a oneness, a oneness in Christ, a oneness that matches the fact that we are placed in one body, in one spirit. That brings us then to... Today's passage, starting in verse 7. Look at your text. Paul writes, But to each one of us grace was given. Now, on the outset, it may seem that Paul is, that Paul is giving, or ha, that, 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 that this is, that is, a, an abrupt change of direction for Paul. Maybe even a change of subject. But I assure you that he has not left his main subject, namely the church's unity. Paul's style is to anticipate an opponent's argument by addressing the main objection. In this case, he begins to address how each one of us as individuals fit into one body. So he begins to address the diversity of our unity. The diversity of our unity. Said another way, he will address how our individual differences, our diversity, should attribute to, not take away from, our church's unity. More specifically, Christ has given us, and more specifically and to the point, Christ has given us individual gifting. He's given us an individual background. And He brings us into the body of Christ, 
And he expects us to use the gifting that we've been given. And yes, even the diverse backgrounds and, and diverse shaping factors, if you will, he, he expects us to use those to attribute to the unity of the body. Now, it's easy to see that he hasn't left the subject of unity. Look down at verse 13. There he states that the ultimate purpose of our spiritual gifts is that we would attain, be, we would use them to help and equip and serve those to attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God and to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, in other words, you and I have been given spiritual gifts to edify the body of Christ and to preserve unity and peace. Now, we can also see in verse 7 that he's addressing individuals because he says in verse 7, but to each one. Notice that those two words, each one. So he has gone from addressing the togetherness as a body in terms of unity to our diversity within the body. Now, what I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is that this is a beautiful picture of the tapestry of what God is doing within the church, the body of Christ. There's a beautiful picture here as, as God brings us together in, in the body of Christ with, with different uh, with different backgrounds and, and with different gifting. And he shapes the, the body of Christ so that we come together, that we form uh, together as one. Now make no mistake, this is all God's handiwork, right? It's all his handiwork as he displays his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms and to a watching world. See, we're not supposed to get together, get together and be uh, and to get along, right? I mean, it, that's not the way it works. We're supposed to be like the world, fighting with one another. But in the church, it's different. In the church, we are to be different. But we to be are to be unified in our differences. When I say we're to be different, what I mean is different than the world. Now, Paul says. But to each one of us, grace was given. Now, there are two possibilities of what he may mean here. He could be meaning our salvation, that, you know, that we are saved by grace through faith. You probably recall that in Ephesians 2.8, Paul reminded that they have been saved by the grace of God. You could say that our salvation then is a gift of God, but Paul may have something else in mind here at verse 7. If you turn to chapter 3, I think I can show you what I really think he's saying. In chapter 3, verse 1, notice that he refers to himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Then he reminds them of the stewardship of God's grace which he had been given. Now that's our first clue. That, that some, this grace, the stewardship of God's grace that he has been given, that had been given to, to him. He had been given, God had given him insight into the mystery of Christ. And this was insight that had been previously revealed, but, not, but now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Sorry, let me say that again. Had not been previously re revealed, but now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Particularly, this is, this, is, this is important, this insight 
was that the Gentiles were to be fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Then he says this in chapter 3, verse 7. Of the gospel of which I was made a minister according to what? According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. In other words, Paul was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He was given works to do, and he was given the grace to do them. And this was all according to the working of his power. J. Oswald Sanders says this regarding the grace of God to prepare leaders for service. He says, God prepares leaders with a specific place and task in mind. Training methods are adapted to the mission and natural and spiritual gifts are training methods are adapted to the mission and natural and spiritual gifts and are given with clear purpose. End quote. The point that, that Oswald Sanders is making is that, that, that God prepares leaders for a specific place and task in mind. And the point is, is that, that God prepared Paul in this very same way. And Paul understood that, that this, this ministry had been given to him by, a grace, by the grace of God. But here's the, here's the truth. This is not limited to leaders, but it applies to all Christians. You remember Ephesians 2.10? Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. According to Paul, it is normal that God would give us good works so that we would walk in them, then give us the gifts that we need to walk in those good works. Now, I would argue that Ephesians 4, 7 provides further proof that God specifically and, spe- and specially prepares all, all Christians. Now here's a newsflash. Here's a newsflash for every one of you. This preparation is not limited to so-called super-Christians. It's not limited to the guys and gals you see on television or on social media or those missionary types who move to the jungles and share the gospel with natives, or even certain, a certain limited special class of Christian in your church. This truth applies to every Christian. As believers, Christ has specially prepared each of you for your role in the body of Christ. We have been given the provision of grace required to perform the works which God has given us. Now, I should say something. I I need to say something about the verb that Paul uses in verse 7. He says, but to each of us this grace was given. And this is is one of the so-called divine passives of Scripture. This is a passive verb. It's something that happens to us. But more than that, More than that, it's something that God does. It's something that God does to us. We can't can't go get this grace that Paul describes. It is given to us by Christ, the Lord of the church. Just listen to John MacArthur describe this transaction. He says this, A spiritual gift is a supernaturally designed ability granted to each and every believer by which the Holy Spirit ministers to the body of Christ. Then he says this, 
A spiritual gift cannot be earned, pursued, or worked up. It is merely received through the grace of God. End quote. See this, we receive what God has given. It's not something that we work up. It's not something that we can conjure up. God has graciously given us our role in the church, and He has given us the power to carry out that role. He's given us the grace that we need. According to Paul, we've been given gifts by His grace to use for the edification of the church. Let's look at the second glorious reality concerning the source of our spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gifts are, secondly, a presentation of Christ. Look at your text. It says that it's according to the measure of Christ's gifts. We've already danced around this truth, but Paul now comes straight at it. These gifts are presented to everyone in the church by Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord. But even more than that, He gives the gifts in correct measure. Said another way, Christ measures out to each believer the right amount of, of, of gifts the right amount of, and the right amount of power necessary, necessary to accomplish what each gift requires. As Christians, as a Christian, you are not deficient in any way. Now, I, I don't talk about this much, but my mother, when growing up, my mother was Baptist. She was the daughter of a small-town Baptist preacher. My father was Pentecostal and preached in and around small Pentecostal churches. And in my later years, he became more and more charismatic. Now, my mother and father, as you might expect, had some conflict uh, with this di- these differences, and they were divorced when I was very young. So I spent time with both over the years. I spent time in Baptist churches, and I spent time in Pentecostal churches. I was, I was on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, for most of my early years. Uh, there was, there's much more to this story, but let me tell you that I watched my charismatic father chase after what he called the second filling of the Spirit. He was convinced that there was more of the Spirit available to him, that he had to strive to get out to get that Spirit. Though to my knowledge, he never found it. Though to my knowledge, he went to his grave still searching for that Spirit. But this text says that we are given, given this grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see, we are given everything that we need at salvation. Now, we might need to develop what we've been given, right? Uh, Through practice and through training. It's not as if a man can come and preach the Word of God without training. Uh, that, That generally doesn't happen. So we may have to develop the gift, but we've been given everything that we need at salvation. We've been given all we need to do to do the works that God has prepared beforehand. Now, this is the reason I don't believe he's speaking of salvific grace here. You see, there's nothing limited about our salvation. There's nothing limited about your salvation. We're not given a limited amount of the Spirit either. All Christians are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit of promise. That's according to verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13. But according to Paul, each believer is given the exact right amount of power necessary to accomplish what each gift requires. In other words, as Christians, each of us is given specific gifts and specific tasks. 
We are created in Christ Jesus for a specific purpose. John MacArthur again says this, Christians are not assembly line productions with every unit being exactly like every other unit. Consequently, no Christian can replace another in God's plan. Did you get that? Let me stop right there. No Christian can replace another in God's plan. If you're a Christian, God has given you special gifting. He has given you He's given you what you need to do, the works that you have been, that He has prepared beforehand, and you need to go walk in them because no one else will. No one else can replace you. You go on with the quote. He has His own individualized plan for each of us and has individually gifted us accordingly. We are not interchangeable parts in Christ's body. End quote. We were also given a measured amount of grace to accomplish the works Christ has given to us. But friends, you are not limited in any way. Just think of it this way. Jesus knows each of you intimately. He has prepared the works that He wants you to walk in. He did this before the foundation of the world. Then He saved you by His grace, and then He gave you the favor or the grace to do the works which He prepared beforehand. This is what Jerry Bridges calls the amazing story of God's grace. He says this, God saves us by His grace and transforms us more and more into the likeness of His Son by His grace. In all our trials and afflictions, He sustains and strengthens us by His grace. He calls us by His grace to perform perform our own unique function within the body of Christ. Then again, by grace, He gives gives to each of us the spiritual gifts necessary to fulfill our calling. As we serve Him, He makes that service acceptable to Himself by grace, and then He rewards us a hundredfold by grace. End quote. Beloved, do you get the picture? It's all by God's grace and for His glory. As we complete these first two glorious realities concerning the source of our spiritual gifts, the provision of His grace, of grace, and the presentation that they are a provision of grace and a presentation of Christ. Have you pondered your own spiritual walk? Are you using your spiritual gifts as God intended you to use them? Do you recognize that you have been you have not been limited in any way to perform the works which God has prepared? beforehand for you to walk in you there is no limits on you that way do you realize that withholding your spiritual gifts from edifying the body of christ is an affront to the one who gave them to you in the first place lastly do you know that god has placed you in the church and given you specific gifts that This church, the church which God has placed you in, this church requires. As such, each and every one of you, as Christians, you are necessary to the body of Christ. Absolutely necessary. 
Can you imagine being a part of a body where each person serves with their spiritual gift without reservation to the fullest of their ability in Christ? Just remember. Just remember what God has given you. Just remember the treasure that He's placed within you. Just remember, listen to this quote by Charles Spurgeon. In only the way, in, in only a way that Charles Spurgeon can say it. He says this God never loses sight of the treasure which he has placed in our earthen vessels. End quote. Let's look at the third glorious rea- reality concerning the source of our spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gifts are, thirdly, a prize of war. A prize of war. Look at your text. Now, we're going to, there's a lot to unpack here, and we may end up next week working through these verses but I at this point I want to take this at a 10,000 foot level so to speak Paul says in verse 8 therefore it says when he ascended on high he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men now this expression he ascended what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth he who descended is he is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might so that he might fill all things now normally and we'll do this we'll go we would go through this word by word and phrase by phrase to, un, to understand Paul's intent but in this case today i think it's better or best to understand these three verses as a whole and then we'll work through those those words and phrases to better comprehend but Paul starts verse 8 with the words therefore it says Now, what he's quoting is Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is his proof that Christ has won the right to give gifts to the church as the spoils of war. Now, I I think that our understanding of Psalm 68 will uh, help us see better why the Lord gives the church the gifts that, that he does. And the answer then is based on Paul's view of redemptive history. Now, believe it or not, as difficult as these verses are, I believe that they may be the most important verses in the letter because they help us recognize why Christ has given gifts to the church. They also help us understand how we fit into redemptive history. Now, as I've said, Paul is quoting Psalm 68, but that's not the full story here. If you'll turn over to Psalm 68, I want to give you a little bit of of insight and what's what's happening Paul actually changes the wording a little bit and what ends up happening is that the commentators are torn on exactly what Paul is quoting here so it it actually is a little bit difficult to grasp but at a high level what we need to understand is that this psalm describes the victory march of God. Now, the, the psalm actually describes a battle, but it's not just a simple battle. I think what David is doing in writing this psalm is he's envisioning in supernatural terms Israel's history with God as their king. As such, it is a celebration of God's victory march throughout redemptive history. 
Now, let's briefly look at Psalm 68 to get a glimpse of this truth, though, again, we won't be able to unpack everything today. Let's cherry pick a few aspects to gain an understanding. <coughs> if you look down at verse 29, the psalmist looks forward to the what, what the psalmist is doing is in verse 29, starting in verse 29 to the end of the psalm, is he's looking forward, I would argue, to the Messiah's reign when God will be worshipped in the temple. So Psalm 68, 29 says, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Now, look at the end of verse 30. Notice what it says. He has scattered the peoples who delight in war. We're picking up on what I would argue is David's, as David, as he describes the aftermath of God's victory in an eschatological battle. Now look at verses 31 and 32, and I hope to prove this to you. Notice what it says. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. Now, when will we see kingdoms, the kingdoms of the earth sing praises to the Lord? I would argue that it's sometime in the future... And I would more specifically argue that it's during the millennial kingdom over which Christ will reign. It is at that time that Christ will be victorious, that He will reign victorious. So I think that's when we'll see kingdoms of the earth sing praises to the Lord. Now, look back at 68.18, which I would argue that Paul is quoting. 68.18 it says, it says, you have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, what I would argue is that Paul has interpreted this to be God's victory in Christ over, the, over sin in the grave. Now, You may remember, and I think I mentioned it earlier, that Christ declared that He would build His church and He began the victory march that went through the cross and death. Now, I would argue that this march has led to the throne of God. As a result of His victory, He has won the right to give the spoils of this victory to His people. Therefore, we have been given spiritual gifts as the spoils of war which was fought of a war which was fought and won by Christ your gifts are a demonstration of Christ's victory over satan who is the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent who is the seed of the woman who has crushed the head of the serpent so When we use our spiritual gifts in the church, we are a demonstration of the victory of Christ over Satan, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And as Abner Chow puts it, we don't hide the spoils of war. We parade them. When Rome conquered another people, as an example, they would take the spoils of victory and they would parade them to show the reality of that victory. 
We are to parade the spoils of victory. God is, Christ has given us the gifts which are the spoils of war. Now for us to, full, to grasp the full implications of this, we must recognize how this fits into, into redemptive history. As I said earlier, Christ has won the war against Satan. In Genesis 3, Satan thought that he had won the war. In Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2, as you might recall, depict the world as it was before sin entered, while Genesis 3 depicts the fall of, of mankind into sin. But 4 through 11, 4 through 11, Genesis 4 through 11, they depict the unity of mankind around what? Evil. The unity of mankind around evil. Have you ever noticed that man always wants to unite around that which is evil? Look around. Look around today. What is the battle cry? The battle cry is unity. Unity. But it's the type of unity, it's the world's unity, it's the world's unity that, that unifies according to what? Man's evil desires. Not according to what God wants, not according to God's plan, but according to man's plan. And in Genesis 4-11, through 11, this evil, man-centered unity resulted in what? Twice. God's judgment. First, in the flood, when he destroyed all but Noah and his family because of their great sin. The people, all the people other than Noah and, and his family. Secondly, secondly, and you might not think of this as, as God's judgment, but it is, secondly, in fracturing mankind, dividing mankind at the Tower of Babel. Again, this was God's judgment against man. God scattering or splitting mankind resulted in the disunity of humanity. More specifically, the nations, right? At the cross, at the cross, Jesus reversed this. He conquered sin, and He conquered Satan, and He restored what was lost. Let me say it another way. He brought true unity at the foot of the cross. Now, you need to understand that the church, more specifically our church in this case, is a microcosm of what God is doing in the world. Our church is a demonstration of what Christ has accomplished in restoring mankind to true unity. True unity. He has made us into what? A new said it many times, a new creation. We're now a new creation in Christ. The Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, was reversed at Pentecost when Christ formed the church. And He brought mankind back together in the church. Now, next week we'll spend a cons some more time considering these verses. But this week I want to focus on this in terms of how the church fits into redemptive history or i wanted to but let's look at the fourth glorious reality concerning the source of our spiritual gifts your spiritual gifts are 
pivotal for unity. Now you put all that together, right? That this that your spiritual gifts are a, are spoils of war, a war that Christ has won. So we are parading the the spoils of victory. What what shows our the spoils of victory? The fact that Christ has made us into a new creation. He has unified that which was lost. He has restored that which was lost. Now let's take a step back and recognize the overall point that Paul is making. As we do so, I want you to think of the role of the church considering the current challenges of our culture. Specifically, the racial tensions that we're seeing in the culture. As the church... Paul makes it clear that we are part of one body of Christ which is united by the Spirit. He makes this point in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. But we fast forward to 4, 3, and what does Paul say there? What does Paul say in Ephesians 4, 3? He implores us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, we have been unified in the Spirit, therefore we are to preserve this unity and we are to preserve the bond of peace that we've been given. Now, just so we fully understand, who is to be unified? The church which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And dare I say, made up of people from all sorts and kinds of backgrounds. People who are all different shades of color. Christ died so that we would no longer have enmity. Said another way, we would no longer have hate between us. In short, The basis of our unity is our oneness in the body of Christ and in the Spirit. The result of our unity is a demonstration that Christ has had victory over sin and Satan. Our spiritual gifts, which are to be used to edify one another, are the spoils of this victory. Therefore, you are called to use your spiritual gifts to promote unity within the body of Christ by edifying the body of Christ with them. And as you do so, as you use these spiritual gifts that you've been given, these spoils of war, it demonstrates something. It demonstrates the manifold wisdom of God through the church, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Beloved, it is through your diligent use of your spiritual gifts which have been given you by God, by Christ specifically, that He gets all the praise, honor, and glory. You realize how important your spiritual gifts are? You realize how much hurt it causes when we don't use our spiritual gifts? When we choose not to serve? It's more than just sweeping the floor and taking out the trash and whatever else that you might do. It's more than that. 
using your spiritual gifts, beloved, is a demonstration. Is a demonstration. And oh, by the way, I know that there are more than that, right? But your spiritual gifts, using your spiritual gifts within the context of the local body of Christ is a demonstration to the rulers and authorities that Christ has won the war. He's victorious. He's victorious. And he gets all the praise, honor, and glory. Let me end with this quote by David Platt. He says this, God's glory is most majestically displayed not through you nor through me, but through us. God raises up the church and says to all creation in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth, this is the bride and body of my son, bought and purchased by his blood to be my people and receive my power and enjoy my presence and declare my praise forever and ever. End quote. It's pretty important. If you haven't figured that out. I pray that you'll go and use your spiritual gifts for His glory and understanding more now what they are for and why He's given them to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this early afternoon. Lord, I pray that we would use our spiritual gifts that you've given us to edify the body, to build up the body. Father, I pray that we would Use them to the utmost. That we would serve you. That we would parade the spoils of war. So that you would get all the glory. We thank you and praise you again in Christ's name. Amen.